Our text for this morning is 1 Corinthians 5, verses 1 through 8. 1 Corinthians 5, verses 1 through 8. <clears throat> there are probably few doctrines that get people upset like the doctrine of church discipline. Especially, especially this idea that a church would remove somebody from its membership. I mean, I thought with all this talk of inviting people to church, we're trying to grow the church, not shrink it, not trying to get rid of people. We want to, to grow. <clears throat> and to many, this seems like a very intolerant sort of idea, church discipline. And it sounds exclusive, and that really is a buzzword for today, tolerance. Right? We need to be tolerant of all things and of all people. But the truth is that everyone is exclusive sometimes. Everyone is intolerant of others sometimes. Even those who think themselves the most tolerant and accepting are sometimes not tolerant and accepting. And I was reminded of this recently during the March for Life on Friday, where thousands of people gathered at the Capitol for the cause of life to support the unborn, to support those who are most vulnerable, to support the life of those who are in danger in uh, their mother's womb. Well, one person, someone who would think of themselves as really tolerant and open-minded and accepting of all sorts of people, posted on their social media this, there are some things in this world we should have no tolerance for and support for abortion restrictions is among them. So they wanted to be tolerant of everyone and everything except for those who are opposed to abortion. <laughs> they were expressing themselves as being intolerant of some things and, and, and uh, in a uh, prideful sort of way. See, we all recognize that intolerance is sometimes necessary. So moms and dads, have you ever said, or have your parents ever said, young lady, I will not tolerate that kind of behavior. I will not tolerate talking back to me. It's something we will not tolerate. And in a sense, there's a sense in which the church must be intolerant of some things. For the purity of the church, for the sake of the witness of Christ, Paul shows us here in these verses why we must be intolerant of persistent, unrepentant, arrogant sin. So look at our, our text this morning, 1 Corinthians 5, 1 through 8, and we'll see how he goes about this for the Corinthians. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this thing be removed from among you. For though absent in the body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present, with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity 
and truth. Our Heavenly Father, as we hear your word read and proclaimed, we pray that you would add your blessing to it. Because without your Spirit working among us, we will not benefit, we will not bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Use your word, use the preaching of your word to stir us up to love you more, to stir us up toward good deeds of love toward one another and towards those outside the church. For your glory and for your good, stir us up to desire this sort of purity for the sake of the name of Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This text shows us how we ought to respond as a church to unrepentant and flagrant sin within the church and why we ought to respond in the way in this way. So let's look at this passage together under these three headings. First, wrong ways to respond to sin in the church. Second, right ways to respond. And then third, why we must respond in this way. So first, notice the wrong ways in which the Corinthian church responded to this sin that was in their midst. We see these in verses 1 and 2. Paul is shocked at their actions or their lack of action. It's like he can't even believe what he is hearing. We're not sure where he's heard it from. You know sometimes how news travels quickly and spreads. And before you know it, it's just common knowledge. Everyone hears it. Everyone knows it. Or maybe this is something Uh, else Chloe's people. We saw that in chapter 1, verse 11. Chloe's people brought a report to Paul. Maybe this is something they also brought to Paul. Either way, the news that Paul heard was shocking to him. It shocked him at his core. It was news of sexual immorality within the church. Now, as an aside, as Christians, we have gotten a reputation of being against sex, right? Or that we think it is a bad thing. And some of that is no doubt due to bad teaching about it in the church. But we must affirm here that sex is a good thing. It's a gift from God for procreation and enjoyment. In fact, it is a very good thing. We should not be ashamed that God has made us the way we are. And yet, we recognize there are proper boundaries to enjoy this gift. As there are for all of God's gifts, right? God's gifts used wrongly or inappropriate ultimately harm God's people. They ultimately harm us and distort God's purposes for his own glory. And so here's where we will come into conflict with our society in these things. When we begin to suggest that God has given us this gift, but there are right ways to use and enjoy this gift, and there are wrong ways to use this gift. This is where we will come into conflict with our society, which sees no rules as being for our good. But notice in this case, even the culture around the Corinthian church recognizes that this sort of immorality is bad. They they even wouldn't tolerate it. Paul says this isn't even tolerated among pagans, among the godless. So you have this church, these Christians, who are accepting of something that not even godless people around them in their culture would accept. Unimaginable. What is it that they wouldn't, this, that the pagans wouldn't allow? Paul says, a man has his father's wife. So of all the despicable things to do, what you have is a man of the church, a member of the church, one who professes faith in Christ. He develops an inappropriate relationship with his mother-in-law or with his stepmother. 
and the church doesn't do anything about it. What is going on here with the Corinthian church? But maybe we could, maybe we could imagine what's going on here. Because in even the religious culture of our own day, there's this widespread idea that we ought never to judge any, anyone or anything or say anything to someone else about their sin. After all, sin is sin. And all people sin. Right? So who are you to cast the first stone? Who are you to judge somebody else? You're just as big a sinner as they are. But this flies in the face of biblical teaching. Certainly we're not to judge others in self-righteousness as though we were better than them in order to bolster our own pride in, in how righteous we think we are. But we are to hold one another accountable for living lives worthy of the gospel. So we come to this question, how did the Corinthians respond to this, this sin in their midst, this unrepentant sin? They responded in two ways. First, they responded in tolerance. In tolerance, not in intolerance. Paul said, it's not even tolerated among pagans, the surrounding culture. And yet here you are accepting it, tolerating it. They turned a blind eye to it. They ignored it. They acted like it was no problem or at the least it was none of their business to get involved in it. And when you ignore something for, for long enough, it becomes commonplace. It becomes easy to ignore. Most of you have been uh, to my house at some point, And I don't know if you've noticed it or not, but in my backyard there is a, a drainage easement. So Whenever it rains really hard, all the water from the street uphill comes down, comes into your, our yard, and then funnels into our backyard. And along with that, that rainwater comes other things, sometimes trash, lots of trash. And so actually, I looked out my kitchen window this morning, and it's been there for several days now. There's this green, it must be a Mountain Dew, plastic Mountain Dew bottle out there. And I look at that and I, I think, I really need to go get that. Because as soon as I walk away, I'll forget about it and it'll just, ha- it'll just be there in the yard. And sure enough, it's been there a few days. I looked out the window this morning and I was like, ah, I got to get that. And there's, uh, there's, you know, it's really cold outside and there's frost on the grass. And I'm like, I don't want to go out there right now. I'll get it this afternoon or something like that. And, and as, as you go day by day, it, it, there's, there's the green bottle. I'm used to it now. That's, you know, that's just a part of my, my yard now. It's kind of like, but it's kind of like you need to say to me or someone needs to say to me, Jim, there's trash in your yard. <laughs> go pick it up. Don't tolerate that. You need to get it out. You need to have a clean yard. <clears throat> you don't want a trashy yard, do you? No. Well, it seems like this sin, this trash within the Corinthian church had become so commonplace in their minds, they simply kept ignoring it. It was no big deal. It didn't really bother them anymore. And that is how sin is in our own lives and in if it takes place in a church. Ignore it long enough and you, you even stop feeling guilty over it. But, if it seems in Corinthian in the in the Corinthian church, the issue was even worse than a simple getting used to it or ignoring it. We see that in the second way they responded. First, they tolerated it, but second, they responded in arrogance. That's what Paul says. You see that verse two. This happens. Pagans don't even tolerate it, and you are arrogant about it. Despite this wickedness, they were proud. There are a couple ways we could take 
take this. First, uh, they could be arrogant in boasting about their own godliness as they were. You remember that? They were rich. They were rulers. They had arrived at sanctification. Or so they thought they had. And Paul's pointing out how ridiculous this is. You think you've arrived? You think you are really righteous? And yet you're tolerating this sin? How could this be? How ridiculous this is. But a second way to take it, and related to it, is that they had not only been ignorant of this, but that they had accepted it and were perhaps even proud of their graciousness to the sinner involved. In this way, they would have been turning the grace of God into permission to do whatever they pleased. And the fancy word for this is antinomianism. Anti against nomianism refers to the law, against the law. One who is opposed to the law, who says, the law now has no place in my life as a Christian. And it's a misunderstanding of the grace of God in Christ Jesus. Yes, we have been saved by grace alone. We are under grace. It is Christ who has justified us by His life, death, and resurrection. And the Spirit regenerates us and indwells within us to produce in us the fruit of His Spirit. And the, the Spirit doesn't produce bad fruit. The Spirit doesn't produce evil fruit. Or as Paul says, how can you who have died to sin still live in it? You can't. You are a new creation in Christ. But the Corinthians were arrogant. Instead, Paul says, they ought to have mourned. So consider, beginning with that, the right ways to respond to sin in the church. How the Corinthian church should have responded to this sin. Instead of tolerance, instead of arrogance and pride, the church should have responded in humble mourning. They should have mourned that this man, their their fellow believer, had fallen into this sin. Before Paul tells them about the outward action they should have taken, he tells them about the inward action. The inward sorrow and turmoil they should have felt. They should have mourned that such wickedness had taken place in their congregation. That that such wickedness had overtaken their brother in Christ. Maybe it's a sign of our times that many of us don't really know how to mourn over sin anymore. Think about the ways... Christians might respond to finding out about some serious sin in the church or with a brother or sister? How might you respond? Certainly, we, we may be tempted to respond in pride, that such a sin didn't overtake us, that we're, we're strong enough to avoid that sort of temptation or sin. We might respond with interest in the salacious details of what was going on in the sin. Even though it's none of our business, we want to find out all the angles of their sin and all the details. Some might respond by saying, well, we're all sinners and we're saved by the grace of God, so we'll just go our happy way. But only humility and mourning express both the disgust that is required the disgust with the sin, and a genuine care for the sinner. Think about that. Humility and mourning express disgust in the sin and genuine care for the sinner. So do we know what it means to mourn 
today to mourn, to truly mourn over our sin? Is there any place for mourning in our society, in, in the culture of the church that we have today? We must apply this to how we respond to sin in the church, but we also must, I think there's an important implication here for how we respond to sin in our own lives as well. Let's apply this to how we respond to sin that we find in our own lives. Sin ought to make us mourn. Your sin ought to make you mourn. But how do you respond? Tolerate sin? Coddle it? Maybe you know the character Gollum in The Lord of the Rings, and he has Precious, his little ring that he guards for himself and he treasures it and he wants to keep it all to himself he needs it he loves it but all the while it turns out he is no longer in control of the ring the ring is in control of him and slowly as he treasures it as he coddles it it is destroying him it is consuming him and that's what sin does as we tolerate it as we coddle it Let this not be so with us. Rather, make every effort to mourn over your sin. For it's our Lord who says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Friends, do you mourn over your sin? Do you consider what pain it caused Christ on the cross? Or do you consider that even now it grieves the Holy Spirit when we sin? Although we know that in Christ God deals with us in grace, He also still hates sin. It's true that God hates sin. God is not pleased when we sin, and we shouldn't be pleased with it either. But Paul moves from an inward response to an outward and public response. So not only should you you grieve and mourn over this sin, he says you should remove this person. Removal. Let him who has done this be removed from among you. And by the way, a good implication of this is that we should have church membership. This indicates that there were some who were considered in the church and some who were considered outside of the church. They should remove this man from being in the church. That means he was in the church. He was a part of the membership. He was a part of the body of the church. He was recognized as a member. It would mean barring him from the fellowship and communion of the saints there in that local gathering. He would no longer enjoy the affirmation by the church of his profession of faith in Jesus Christ. They could no longer in good conscience affirm, yes, we believe this, this man's confession of faith. And he wouldn't participate in the fellowship. He wouldn't partake in the Lord's Supper. He would be barred from the benefits and the enjoyments of being a part of God's church. Now, Paul isn't there physically, but with the reading of this letter to the Corinthians, it's as if he is present. In the writing of his letter and in the reading of it to the church, Paul pronounces judgment on the one who is guilty of the sin. He has already done so. He says, I've already pronounced judgment on this man like you should have done. And so when they are gathered together as a church, Paul says, in the name of the Lord Jesus, they should deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. 
This represents, it appears, an official gathering of the church in order to make some public and official action. They are to do this action, Paul says, with the power of the Lord Jesus. This action will carry the authority and weight as if Jesus Christ, the Lord, had done it. This this presents a, a severity to what they're doing. A sobriety to this action that they are to take. This brings into view the spiritual nature of this action. In this action, the church is speaking as the Lord Jesus. It's as Jesus said in Matthew 18. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. But what does this mean? You probably may be perplexed about this, that they should deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. My first thought would be that it has something to do with uh, allowing Satan to afflict him physically somehow. Right? Doesn't your mind turn there Maybe immediately. For instance, as God allowed Satan to afflict Job, even though he wasn't guilty of some particular sin, or as Paul was given a thorn in his flesh, as he calls it, a messenger of Satan, so that he might depend upon the Lord. And if this is the case, then the idea would be to deliver this man over to the realm of Satan outside of the church, making an allowance for him to suffer physically in order that he might turn back to the Lord and be saved. And it sounds like there could be some merit to that. But at the same time, which one of us is not susceptible to physical suffering, even though we are a part of the church? We're not promised we'll have an easy and pain-free life because we're Christians. In fact, we know it could get worse. So it seems to me like a better interpretation here would be to say that this is simply Paul's way of repeating that this man should be removed from the church. He should be removed uh, from the realm of the church so that his flesh, that is a way the New Testament also speaks of the flesh, his self-sufficiency and worldly way of living would be destroyed. The destruction of this worldliness within him would be destroyed in hopes of him turning back to the Lord. So here the flesh doesn't refer to physical body or health, but rather, uh, as one author says, a mode of life lived in pursuit of its own ends. He says, Paul envisages that the offender, bereft of the approval and support of the community, will find his self-sufficiency and self-reliance eroded until he comes to reach a change of heart. So, So you see, the goal of this action is not simply punishment, is not simply to exclude. The goal of this action, the hope of this action, is redemption, is restoration, That he would be saved in the end. You see, ultimately, church membership and church discipline is for our good. Accountability is for our good. Not simply that we would be judged by one another or would judge anyone, but so that our souls would be saved. It's not this man's suffering which will save him as though somehow making he's somehow making atonement for his sin. Rather, it is hoped that he would be stripped of his self-sufficiency and respond in repentance and faith once again in the Lord Jesus Christ. But you may wonder why such a dramatic action. It seems mean and exclusive and tolerant. Should the Corinthians really remove him from the church? Well, Paul tells us why this is an appropriate set of actions. He answers the question, why must we respond in this way? And I have 
two reasons from this passage. The first reason is the infectious nature of sin within the church. The infectious nature of sin within the church. Paul says you're boasting of godliness while tolerating such sin is actually doing harm to the body. It's putting the whole church in danger. He says, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? So the church in this image is a pure lump of dough and leaven is a substance, usually yeast, which permeates the dough and makes it ferment and rise. His point, it only takes a little bit of leaven and before you know it, the whole batch of dough is permeated with it. Leaven is bad in this image, right? It's like one small drop of red dye in a glass of water. First, you see the drop by itself, and then gradually it starts spreading and spreading and, until it, the whole cup is red. The whole cup of water is red. And this, Paul says, is what sin in the church is like. This is why you must respond in this way with the, in this particular case. But there's more to this image, too. After the exodus, God commanded the people to clean out all the leaven in their houses so that they would remember how the Lord rescued them from Egypt. In fact, they were commanded to observe the Feast of Unleavened Bread each year, and anyone who ate leaven during the seven days leading up to it would be cut off from Israel. In other words, they would be removed from the people of God. So take this lesson to heart. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Ignoring serious sin in the body does us no good. It's like an infection that takes root in one small part of the body, but slowly grows and spreads until it's in the bloodstream and it infects the whole body. So first, we should respond to sin this way because of the infectious nature of sin. But second, we should respond to sin in the church because of the indicative of who we are in Christ, because of the indicative of who we are in Christ. The word indicative means a statement, uh, a positive statement of reality, of fact. In other words, the fact is that we who are in Christ, the church of Christ, Christ Church Rollsville, you really are unleavened. In Christ, you are pure. You are without guilt. You are free from leaven. You are new in Christ. Why are we new? Why were the Corinthians a pure, unleavened lump of dough? Look at the second part of verse 7. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. The reason they were pure was not because they worked so hard to be pure. The reason we are pure it's not because we've gotten rid of any and every sin in ourselves and in our midst. The reason they were pure and the reason we are pure is because Jesus Christ is our Passover lamb who was sacrificed for our sin. In the 10th plague, the Lord killed every firstborn of Egypt. But those who sacrificed a lamb and put its blood on the doorpost were passed over by the angel of death. And we who have received the sacrificial lamb of Christ, we who have been sprinkled by his blood, God has passed over us and forgiven us our sins because Jesus bore the wrath that was due to us. So have you been cleansed? Have you been made new? Have you received Christ as your Passover lamb, as your sacrificial Lamb, Because this is the only way to be saved and be a part of God's people. The only way you will belong to God and be saved. Through faith in Christ who died for sinners. 
Therefore, Paul says, in light of what Christ has done for you, in light of Christ's work for you, in light of how you've been made pure, let us celebrate the festival with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth, not with the leavened bread of malice and evil. In other words, Christ's purifying sacrifice leads us not to sin, but to pursue sincerity and truth, to pursue purity and not sin. So I love this picture that we're giving, given here. We're not simply to celebrate the Passover meal once a year as the people of Israel were commanded to do. But we're called to celebrate the festival of Christ, our Passover lamb, day after day forever, each day remembering his sacrifice for us, each day, each week, each month, feeding upon Christ who is our Passover lamb. So this is why we mourn over sin. This is why we passionately pursue purity in our midst, because sin has the ability to infect the whole church and because we are a new and pure people in Christ. We have been made new in Christ. Flee from sin. Why would the Israelites want to go back to Egypt when they'd been set free? And why would we go back to impurity when we have been made pure by the sacrifice of Christ? And so, friends, let us celebrate the festival with sincerity and truth. Let us celebrate the festival by feeding upon Christ, our sacrificial lamb, day in and day out, in your workplace, in your home, in your neighborhood, individually celebrate the festival by feeding upon Christ, our Passover lamb, day by day for the rest of our lives. But here's the thing, it's actually leading somewhere. It's leading somewhere. It's leading to that day when we will gather with all of God's saints for what is called the marriage supper of the Lamb, when we will feast together with Christ, when we will feast together with all of God's people and with God Himself. We read about that in Revelation 19, verses 6 to 9. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out. John can't even express what it is he is hearing and seeing. Hallelujah, the crowd says, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Let's pray together.